2: Today, Nate welcomes music biz veteran Michael Oberman to discuss his book, Fast Forward, Play, and Rewind, a chronicle of the touring musicians of the late 1960s, including some legendary anecdotes about David Bowie's first visit to the USA. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's
0: time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Michael Oberman, author of Fast Forward, Play, and Rewind, a memoir of his time at the Washington, D.C. Evening Star and his tenure as a music biz manager and uh, I wouldn't say record executive, but working for the record companies. Michael, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks, Nate. Pleasure to be here. So I really enjoyed the book. It's it's a collection of columns that you wrote for the Washington Evening Star from 67 to 73. Um, you interviewed, basically, it seems like every band that came through town in that period, and it seemed like everybody came through. You've got James Brown, Jerry Butler, the Casinos, Joe Tex, uh, the Rolling Stones, the Monkees, on and on. Mitch Ryder, Boyce and Heart, Johnny Winter, the Birds, Blind Faith, Sir Douglas Quintet. I mean, there are... Literally, I want to say dozens, but maybe over well over 100 interviews in here. They're all short and tasty, but they all have real quotes from the artists and very interesting stuff. But you also introduce kind of a sad note in the book when you talk about your brother, Ron, who you had originally planned to collaborate on this book with. And he wrote columns for The Evening Star from 64 to 67. And you list the artists that he spoke to. And it's classic Beatles invasion, British invasion, Dave Clark, five Beatles, lots of Motown, stuff like that. What happened to Ron that he wasn't able to collaborate with you on the book?
1: Well, we decided to do a book together back in 2009 and Ron was living in Los Angeles and I live in Columbia, Maryland. And when we came up with the idea of co-authoring the book, I said to him, you're in LA, you're probably going to find it easier to get a literary agent out there than I am in Columbia, Maryland. And he snapped his finger and we had an agent and she loved the concept of the book so we decided to start writing chapters and ron would write his and i would write mine and we would email each other a chapter as as we finished them and ron's chapters started coming to me and they just weren't right it was like there was there was no life to them so I would get on the phone with Ron and, and say, Ron, you've got to, you know, juice it up a little bit. These, you know, it's pretty bland, but there was some exciting things that you're not talking about. Well, it wasn't getting juiced up. And Ron came back uh, East for my mother's birthday. And I noticed a distinct personality change in him. And I asked him what the problem was. And he said he was diagnosed with clinical depression And he was separated from his wife, which I didn't know at the time. And that turned out to be a false diagnosis. After PET scans were done, uh, he was diagnosed with the beginning of frontotemporal dementia. And uh, that's a pretty common dementia. About 20% of dementias are FTD. So, uh, the project came to a halt he he couldn't handle it the literary agent left the scene and uh time passed my mother was elderly i was helping take care of her and i put the book project on the back burner
0: and i'm glad you revived it i'm very sorry to hear about your brother ron and it's it's frustrating because you can see from the forward of the book what it could have been if the two of you had been able to collaborate and and the two of you covered you know Two periods that came one right after the other, but there were very different eras: sixty-four to sixty-seven versus sixty-seven to seventy-three. When you followed in his footsteps at the Evening Star, when did it become apparent to you that this was a whole new era that things had changed in sixty-seven, or or was it? Yeah, yeah. I had a I had an epiphany in June of sixty-seven.
1: I was visiting Ron in Chicago at the time he was director of publicity at Mercury Records. And I was staying at his apartment. And he said, Oh, I've got an advanced copy of the Beatles new album, Sergeant Pepper. And I said, Oh, let's hear it. And I heard it. And I said, Holy cow, this is the welcome to the drug era. And <laughs> yeah, and you know, hearing Lucy in the Sky with diamonds. I said, this is not the Beatles of old. And of course, things were already starting to happen. We had the summer of love going on here in the United States. And I don't know if the British music scene was trying to to capture that feeling that was happening here. But you've got to understand, when I first started writing the column in 67, because it was February or March, I concentrated uh, at first on R and B groups on soul because I was always welcomed backstage at the Howard theater, which was DC's version of the Apollo. And I found it easy to get back there and, and talk to people like Curtis Mayfield, James Brown, et cetera. So, and that was kind of the music that I came up on um, having Ron as, as a big brother you know, I lived through the British invasion. I got to see the Beatles two times in DC and I lived vicariously through what my brother was doing. But it was really the summer of sixty seven that that I saw a, a, a really a change, a
0: major change in the music scene in, in the States. And one of the artists that sort of epitomized that change in scene, somebody that you got to see at the University of Maryland, was Frank Zappa. And you've got a pretty funny anecdote about Frank Zappa. What was it like to see Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention in 1967?
1: Well, the fact is I saw them before 67. And I'll tell you the 67 story in a minute ron and i lived at my parents house while we were attending the university of maryland while we were both working at washington star and a lot of the promo material from record companies were sent to the house and every week for i don't know whether it was eight or ten weeks a piece of a jigsaw puzzle came it was mailed to ron and when he put it together it was the zappa album it was the mothers of invention Freakout album and then he got a call from the PR guy from MGM, Saul Handworker, who said, Ron, I've got the, the Mothers of Invention coming to D.C. Not to play, but would you show them around town? So I did get to see Zappa for a few minutes then. But then in at the University of Maryland, I was on the Student Union Board and I was on the Entertainment Committee and we booked... Zappa into the Student Union Ballroom. And it was very, very cool. The ballroom was packed, and not everyone knew who Zappa was, but free music was free music. Well, when Zappa came out on stage, uh, he said that he had used the men's room in the Student Union building. And this is a fact. There are two facts about the University of Maryland when I went there that people still don't believe the men's room stalls had no doors. So when you were taking a crap, people would walk by and they could see you. The second thing is, you, it was mandatory that you took swimming as part of your gym class and you had to swim in the nude. So people to this day don't believe that and we have to dive in the nude. So Zappa comes <laughs> on stage and he said, I can't believe I took a crap in front of students here And I don't know whether it's just a coincidence or whether that moment caused Zappa and company to come out with the Five Zappa Crappa poster, which uh, if your listeners have never seen it, you can just go online and look it up. And it shows Zappa sitting,
0: you know, facing the camera on a toilet. That's a legendary 60s uh, bit of iconography.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I'd like to think that I was partially responsible for that, <laughs> but I certainly wasn't. I, I certainly wasn't responsible for no no doors on those stalls.
0: <laughs> and let's hear a little bit of Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. This is "Hungry Freaks Daddy." Mr. America, walk on by. Your schools that do not teach, Mr. America, walk on by the
1: minds that won't be reached, Mr. America,
0: try to hide the emptiness that's you inside. And that was Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention with Hungry Freak's Daddy, which certainly, if if, if you weren't aware that the times were changing once you heard that uh, and saw the Freak Out cover, I'm sure you had a clue. But let's backtrack a little bit. You talk about James Brown, and you met James Brown several times throughout the whole course of his life. Tell us a little bit about meeting that great man.
1: Well, the first time I met him, I was 16 years old, and... Ron was doing an interview with him at the Howard Theater and and you know the four year difference in age between Ron and I you would have thought back then was light years but it wasn't I was already working as a copy boy at the Washington Star he was at the Star we both loved music and whenever he could he brought me along for these interviews and he brought me to the Howard Theater and There I was with James Brown. Now, James Brown had previously, before music, had been a boxer. And I'm in his dressing room, and he's shirtless, and with a lot of pancake makeup on his face, wearing a uh, chain with a mezuzah. And I'm in my uh, kind of Beach Boys short sleeve shirt with peroxided short hair, having just come through the, the surf scene myself, and there I am with the Godfather of Soul. And he was as gracious as could be. He had a separate dressing room from the band, and I would say that his shoe collection rivaled Imelda Marcos's shoe collection. <laughs> you, you walked in his dressing room, and it was hangers full of, of clothes and capes, et cetera, and on the floor were shoes all neatly lined up for him to choose from so that was my first meeting with him my my second meeting was when i was writing for the star and i had the column top tunes and i met with james at the watergate hotel and he remembered me well and part of the remembrance for james with the oberman family was I'm not even sure if I wrote about this in the book. If I mentioned it, you know, I'm glad I did. If I didn't, it will be in the next book. Um, My brother took James to the White House to meet Hubert Humphrey. Vice President Humphrey uh, had a a program to keep kids from dropping out of school. And James had a song out, Don't Be a Dropout. So, boom, the Humphrey – Uh, brown meeting took place with Ron there and I remember Ron coming home and he told me about it he said there was only one embarrassing moment when uh, Hubert Humphrey said to James Jimmy boy my girls really love your music (laughs) and it was that that Jimmy boy thing that stuck in my mind you know it's I don't think Hubert Humphrey was racist but it was I don't want to call a black man a boy yeah
0: Yeah, uh, that sounds just like generational cluelessness on Humphrey's part. And it's fascinating, uh, you know, that and you did talk about that meeting in the book a little bit. And it's fascinating because James Brown spends a lot of time at the White House um, in the next few years, particularly with Nixon. So um, and, and, you know, in our current era of so many celebrities who had endorsed Donald Trump and so on, it's always been politically dicey. For musicians to get close to politicians, whether it's Frank Sinatra with the Kennedys or James Brown with with Humphrey and then later Nixon, uh, so I thought it was just classic that you had the White House connection. Was knowing that you were writing out of D.C., I was kind of and I, when I saw the James Brown chapter, I was kind of wondering. I wonder if the White House gets tied into this. So I was, uh, it's a it's a small town, <laughs> so I was glad that, to see oh, it, that.
1: It, it, it is. And there the, the were there were two experiences for me. At the White House, the one vicariously with James Brown and Humphrey, but the second one was when the new vaudeville band came to town. And I knew someone who worked at the White House, and she got in touch with me and she said, You know, Lyndon Johnson's daughters love Winchester Cathedral. I know you're going to be interviewing the band. Do you think you could bring them by the White House? And I approached the band's management, and they were ecstatic. Uh, they get to go to the White House and we go in there. They're going to meet with Johnson's daughters. And we're walking down a hallway and there's a door open in the room and there's a grand piano. And the keyboard player goes into that room, opens the piano and starts playing Winchester Cathedral and Secret Service agents seem to come out of every crevice in that room <laughs> and fl- slam that that piano shut because Lyndon Johnson was in the next room in a meeting with some dignitary. So, you know, you live in Washington at the time I was living in the heart of the city. And it, I I say it's akin to LA in that LA is kind of a, a one trick town, the entertainment industry and DC is politicians and lawyers. So you're walking down the street, in Washington D.C., and you might see the senator from Missouri, and you recognize him because the Washington Post has a lot of political stories. You walk down the street in L.A. and you run into Jennifer Aniston, and you know who she is. So there's there's kind of a a symbiotic relationship there. Certainly, entertainers like to be in D.C. Uh, they're they're bound to meet some dignitary who likes their music.
0: And another small-town instance that you tell is you've got some anecdotes about Carl Bernstein, who later became legendary as one of the Watergate reporters. Yeah,
1: well, you know, growing up um, with a big brother, and my brother went to high school with Carl, and they were best friends. And Carl would come over to my parents' house in Silver Spring. In fact, one time— she had a, a master key to GM cars and took my mother's car for a joyride one night, um, unbeknownst to her, she was asleep. But we had uh, a group of guys, and most were older than me, and I hung with them. And Carl was one of them, and there was a guy named Louis Singer. The others were remain nameless. And, There was a woman who lived around the corner from my parents' house, Mrs. Nias, and she was in her 70s, and her mother, the elderly, very elderly Mrs. Nias, was in her 90s, and they were anti-Semites. And the neighborhood probably was 30% Jewish, and when we would walk by their house, the Nias women would come out and scream obscenities at us sometimes squirt us with a hose and it wasn't a fun squirting. They were, <laughs> they, they were evil uh, women. So one Halloween, the guys that I'm talking about, Carl and my brother, myself included, Louis Singer, got together in two cars, there were six of us, and we arranged a raid on the Nia's house. And one car drove to the street behind her house. The other car pulled up in front of her house. The car that came up behind her house, uh, the people in it, the kids in it, got out and threw pebbles on her aluminum-sided porch, which drew the two old women out back. And when we got a signal, a yell from the guys out back, uh, we threw bricks through all of her front windows. And... You know, I I sort of regret it, but in in the age where we've just gone through four years of hell in this country, a divided country, I really don't regret uh, vandalizing, you know, a racist anti-Semite house. Um, The funny thing is, we wouldn't have been caught except the car I was in. The driver had covered the license plates with towels and we're driving down Forest Glen Road and we get pulled by the cops for obscuring the license plate. And they put two and two together and realized we were probably the guys who they just had a call on this vandalism. So Carl Carl and I have remained friends. And in fact, he's working on a book now on the Evening Star newspaper. Um, I don't know if you're aware that Carl's son is a musician. Yeah. Mac, and Max and my, and, and my brother Ron used to play poker together. Ron, when he retired from the music business before he became ill, was a very good poker player, played in the senior uh, World Series of Poker twice, and uh, was really good friends with Max. And uh, Carl is, is, a, is, is a music nut, but now most people know him from
0: being a talking head on CNN. <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, it's, it's classic, like from my vantage point as a Gen Xer, uh, not Carl Bernstein's not someone I think of as a teenager uh, taking vigilante social justice into his hands, <laughs> 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 so that was a pretty classic one, and I'm going to um, play um, another tune and then ask you to tell us about it. This is, this is something I hadn't been aware of until I read this book, and this is The Wonder Who, doing Bob Dylan's Don't Think Twice. It's all right. And that was the Wonder Who, doing Don't Think Twice. And you don't have to hear it very long to, to know who, if you know anything about sixties music. But but reveal the spoiler. Who was The Wonder Who?
1: Well, The Wonder Who was the four seasons, and uh, you know, pretty much you didn't have to be an idiot savant to to realize that at the time. Though the promotion for The Wonder Who was, you know, the the advanced promo materials didn't speak of the Four Seasons. They really wanted to create a buzz. You know, I think the the, the Four Seasons wanted to hop on the uh, the new music uh, train at the time. And I don't know if at the time they thought it was just going to be a one-off or not, but it was pretty much a one-off.
0: As the Wonder Who, although they did that really fascinating, bizarre split album of. Half Bacharach covers and half Bob Dylan covers, uh, so the, the the Four Seasons fascinate me because it's it's a group that you hear a lot of. Um, you know, as somebody coming up younger and they, and that they hits through the 70s and 80s. But you hear their 60s stuff on the oldie stations quite a bit. If you're on Sirius XM, they'll play it on their 60s channel quite a bit. But there's virtually no books about the four seasons. There's very few magazine articles. And if it wasn't for the Broadway play and the Clint Eastwood movie, very few people today would know their story. So they've always had this very strange approach to press and PR very different. But when you look into their body of work, they're really analogous to the Beach Boys. I mean, they wrote their own songs. They had Bob Gaudio, an in-house songwriter. They worked with Bob Crew, who was a brilliant producer, put out tons of great singles. They had credibility on the R&B charts way longer than any other white act of their era. They never really succeeded in putting it together in the album format the way the Beach Boys did. There's no Four Seasons Pet Sounds, although they tried. So I just had to get that in there because I I knew they had done that song, but I didn't realize they had done it under an alias. So uh, totally weird stuff. And I think one of the values of this book to me is that it gives you – the contemporary view of the music scene at that time and it's it's a who's who of every touring act pretty much that went to DC at the time and you really get a feel for what bands were on the ground working the country at the time so it's a really valuable contribution to history that I would like to thank you for collecting and I really hope that you put Ron's columns together and put those out at some point I would I would love to read those as well but let's let's move on to another anecdote when you had a particularly tough dilemma the night that you went to see the who there was another act that you could have seen and pete townsend actually leaves after the who's show to go catch this act who was this act that drew pete townsend across town and made him miss the Hermans hermit's hermits
1: jimmy hendrix and we had a theater that was open it had been a movie theater and now it was rebranded the ambassador theater and it was uh, trying to be the Fillmore East or the Fillmore West. Um, And it was doing a good job for six months. And Hendrix was there, played for five nights. So the night of, listen, you know, to think that the Who was opening for Herman's Hermits, you know, and I had to stay for Herman's Hermits (laughs) (laughs) because I was, I was, you know, I was writing for the star and I had to to interview Herman. Um, Well, I, you know, the only thing I regret about not going over to the Ambassador Theater that night, besides getting to see Hendrix again, was that uh, Nils Lofgren was there. Guys I know now, Johnny Castle, who's been the bass player for a great blues group, Nighthawk, um, and Pete Townsend went over to see Jimmy that night. So it it was kind of a, a, a classic night in Washington rock. Rock history. Um, To have Townsend being a fan in the audience of Jimi Hendrix, you know, I'm sure would have been a sight to behold. Um, I missed it, but, uh, you know, I made up for it with a lot of other things.
0: (laughs) And how how was The Who opening up for Herman's Hermits? How did the teeny bopper crowd go for The Who? Did they do the full drum smashing, guitar smashing act?
1: They did. They did a, a semi version of that. Um, the The Who became a staple in D.C. I mean, their Georgetown University show. Um, the The only time Led Zeppelin and the Who were billed together was at Meriwether Post Pavilion, which is about two miles from where I am right th- right at this minute in Columbia, Maryland. Um, they didn't really do. Uh, they kicked over the drums at, at, at constitution hall you got to understand constitution hall was, it was shortly after that, that they banned rock and roll from constitution hall. Um, this is the daughters of the American revolution. This is uh, the DAR who barred black artists from playing there, who barred Marian Anderson from singing there. So, it wasn't a welcoming place. Had about a little over three thousand seats, um, but it was like w- walking into Mount Vernon. It was like you know this historical stuff, and the sound in the room wasn't great. Probably the, the poorest sound of any three thousand seat room I've been in. You know that that was amped up in the future when they last started allowing rock and roll there again except that rock and roll outgrew 3,000 seat rooms in D.C.
0: And I want to take our sponsor break, and when we get back on it, I want to ask you about uh, something that happened to you in D.C. or in Georgetown uh, around this time, and and I want to get your take on this. But let's, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors before that. Now we're back. And uh, Michael, right in the middle of the book, you uh, tell about something really dreadful that happened to you in Georgetown when you were attacked and pretty grievously injured. Tell us about that and what the aftermath of that was like for you. Well, I was, I guess this was
1: December of 67. So I had only been writing for the Star for eight or nine months. And I had gone to Georgetown to a club called The Round Table. a uh, group uh, called The Cookies was playing there. And I thought I might get an interview, but it was getting late. And I had to be into work because I was still a copy boy beside the writer at the time. I had to be into work early the next day. So I left without doing the interview. It was sometime between 10, 10.30 at night. Now, Georgetown, for those who don't know, is kind of an upper class area of DC it had, at one time had been predominantly an African-American community. And then it started getting gentrified and became kind of upscale, except for the strip on M Street, where there were all the rock and roll nightclubs. But if you walked off the strip, there were townhouses. I mean, John F. Kennedy bought his first house in in D.C., in Georgetown, a townhouse in Georgetown. At the time, it was $100,000, and that blew people away. Wow, $100,000 house, that's amazing. Well, you can't get a $100,000 apartment now in D.C. So I'm walking back to my car, which was parked on a street, nice houses, and four guys were walking towards me, I didn't think anything of it. They looked like servicemen when I saw them walking towards me, and Georgetown was a hot spot for servicemen to come on the weekends uh, because of all the rock and roll clubs. And as they approached me, they started to slow down. I was probably 20 yards from my car, and they stopped and began to ask me directions. And I didn't think anything of it. One of them said, you know, what's the best club or where's some clubs or how do we get to the clubs? And I began to to talk to them, and they formed a circle around me, and a very tight circle. And these were guys with sidewall haircuts, so like marine kind of cuts. And I knew I was in trouble. And the guy in front of me pulled one of those old six and a half ounce bottles of Coca-Cola, the thick glass bottles out of his, he had a pea coat on, out of his pea coat. And I put my arm up in front of my face to defend my head. And the guy behind me hit me in the head with a monkey wrench. And the wrench knocked about a silver dollar-sized piece of skull, shattered it into my brain and you'll see a, a Western movie, somebody's in the head with even just a bottle. They're unconscious. Well, I wasn't unconscious. I was still standing. I saw a white light, felt great heat through my body, didn't know how badly I was injured. And when I didn't fall, the guy in front of me hit me in the face with the uh, bottle of Coke crushing my nose and my cheekbone. So I finally fell, and I played dead. And they went through my pockets, got my wallet out, took my money out of my wallet, took my ring. And I watched my father, that belonged to my father, off my wrist. And after the attack, I, I went through neurosurgery. And actually, I, the luck of the draw, the surgeon who operated on me happened to be on call at Georgetown University Hospital. He was the same surgeon who was flown out to Texas when JFK was shot. Um, Of course, there was nothing he could do uh, in Texas, but there was something he could do for me. And they took the splintered skull out of my brain. and For nine months, I had to live with skin stretched over that hole because at age 20, your bones are still growing. And they didn't want to put a plate in and have have it pop out because my skull is still growing. So nine months later, I went in for a second neurosurgery to have the plate put in my head. Anyway, a bus driver uh, recognized the story that I had dictated and was the front page of the Washington Star and called the police and said that four guys fitting the description I had given had tried to get on his bus and they had blood on their clothes and asked how they could get to Quantico, which is the Marine base in Northern Virginia, And the bus driver told him to get off off of his bus. They did. Well, the D.C. police handed it over to the naval authorities, and the naval authorities did nothing about it. At the time, the war in Vietnam was raging. And I don't know if a lot of people these days realize, judges at the time when a juvenile delinquent came into the courtroom gave them a choice jail time, or join the Marines. So a lot of bad guys joined the Marines, and they were fodder for the battle that was going on in Vietnam. And I'd like to think that karmically, the guys who attacked me for no other reason than maybe they thought I was an anti-war protester for some reason, um, karmically, I think they probably didn't come back whole it's a terrible
0: thought but that's what I think. Yeah, and it's it's a heavy story and and you know a lot of histories of D.C. in this era focus on the racial unrest There were massive riots in 68 and Alexandria, Virginia, you know, big chunks of that were burned and whole neighborhoods in D.C., but this is a very different experience you had, but the experience of enduring crime and violence in the late 60s is a big part of your generation's story whether it's being mugged in DC or going to Altamont and beat up by the Hells Angels or killed or the Manson family, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted to get that story in because I think it very much is essential to getting the tenor of the times. Um, that introduction of violence in this sort of, I mean, we know it wasn't an Andy Griffith, you know, Opie Cunningham world, but. That's kind of the impression people have of the early 60s and and this big change in the late 60s. But I'm going to play one more song and then get you to tell another series of stories. And this is the legendary Stardust's Cowboys Paralyzed. (laughs) (laughs) That was the legendary stardust, Cowboy's Paralyzed. And if you never heard that before, you're probably going, what the hell is that? And why is that being played on this show? But that's actually a very historically significant record and one that your brother played a role in musical history by giving that to somebody else. Who did he give it to, and what's the story?
1: Well, he ended up giving it to a lot of people, but the key person he gave it to was David Bowie. And that was, it's funny because we're talking now, and last week was the 50th anniversary of Bowie's first trip to the United States, when my brother, who, like I said before, was director of publicity at Mercury Records, brought Bowie to the States. At the time, you, he couldn't get a work permit to perform here. There was trade-off. American group had to play in Great Britain for a British group to play in America. And Bowie wasn't part of that trade-off. So David came to the United States and uh, Ron brought him here for a promotional tour. And in terms of the legendary Stardust Cowboy, David uh, was in my brother's office on East Wacker Drive in Chicago, Mercury was one of the labels that had headquarters in Chicago, and their satellite offices were L.A. and, and New York and London. And uh, Ron handed him a stack of 45s and said, "And for those listeners out there who don't know what a 45 is, it's not a gun; it's a 45 revolutions per minute <laughs> record." <laughs> he didn't hand them a stack of guns. And Cole said to David, You've got to hear the legendary Stardust Cowboy. And David heard Paralyzed. And I can honestly say, having read interviews mm-hmm. with David after that time, that he took the Stardust part of Ziggy Stardust from Legendary Stardust Cowboy. And in fact, in the future, after that, he covered a song by The Ledge. Uh, I took a trip on a Gemini spaceship and finally met The Ledge in person years later. Um, And the the weird thing is, in February of 2019, when I got signed by Backbeat Books to a publishing deal, I got a, a, a message from someone in Great Britain that, A company called Salon Pictures was doing a movie called Stardust. And it was about that trip where my brother brought David to the U.S. And David said to my brother, I want to spend my first day with an American family. And that happened to be my brother, myself, and my parents in Silver Spring, Maryland. And a movie was made about that. And it goes into more than the trip to Silver Spring. It goes into a a lot of other stuff.
0: And the sad thing to me is uh, – I don't know, Nate. Have you seen the movie? I have not. I've only heard about it through reading your account of it. Uh, I'm not a huge Mark Maron fan. Not that I have anything well, against it, but I just
1: – You know, when, when I wrote the book, the movie hadn't come out yet, but I had been in touch with Salon Pictures in February of 2019. and I said, hey, I'm Michael Oberman. I'm the only person who's still alive when David came to Silver Spring, Maryland. And I can give you background on my brother and some aspects of David's trip. And Paul Van Carter, a producer of the film, and one of the partners in Salon said to me, Oh, Michael, that's great. I'm going to put uh, Chris Bell, the screenwriter, and Gabriel Range, the director, in touch with you. He said, Fab- fabulous. Be happy to talk to them. And months went by. In fact, it wasn't until August when I got a phone call. There was a British actor. Michael, Michael Everman, yes. Uh, Gabriel Range. I said, "Oh, Gabriel, hi, I guess you want some background." Oh no, we just finished the film. Uh, we shot eighteen days in in Hamilton, Canada. I said, "Oh, you finished the film?" And I said, "Well, I you know I know that Mark Meron plays my brother, and Mark Maron's in his mid fifties, and my brother was twenty seven at the time in nineteen seventy one, and." Go, range kind of stuttered and said well you know we've added some, you know, a little bit of fiction to the film and I said well tell me what the, the, the gist of the film is and well it's a buddy film it's about your brother and David driving across the United States and I said well my brother and David never drove across the United States so I, I knew that this film was going to be highly fictionalized and it was And honestly, you know, I know a lot of people out there like Mark Maron, but in a recent interview, he was asked, did you do any research on the character Ron Oberman? I don't know. Well, you know, I can't place the full blame on Maron for playing my brother like a total asshole in the movie. He played him as kind of a low class. Every other word out of his mouth was the F-bomb. My brother never cursed in his life. Um, my brother didn't have a beat up station wagon, didn't drive across the country. So some of the blame goes with Christopher Bell, the screenwriter. Some goes with Gabriel range. The film did not have the blessing of Duncan Jones, David's son, who would refuse to license the music. There is a character. There's an actor in the movie who plays me. I didn't give them permission. There's a scene in my parents' house where Michael Oberman, that being me, says to David Bowie, Are you a novelty act? Well, in <laughs> 1971, I had already interviewed David in 1969 on the phone, and I knew him. And we didn't have dinner at my parents' house. We went to a restaurant. And the younger brother and sister sitting at the dining room table, that's news to me. I didn't know I had a young younger siblings. And my mother saying to David, "I think you're really going to like my kasha varnishkas." And my mother never made a Jewish dish in her life, so <laughs> you know. Yeah. On a personal level, the film was terrible, but as as a film, I thought it was dreadful. I thought Johnny Flynn, who I've seen three Johnny Flynn films in the last month: Beast, The Dig and stardust i thought he was great in beast i thought he was great in the dig and in stardust he was not david Bowie. it just it didn't work
0: yeah it's it's very hard to pull off and it's uh always a fascinating experience to be on the other side of a fictional retelling of your life and i assume you know since david and your brother both passed that they have a lot of latitude of to write a fictional play but it's interesting i was surprised that they put you in there since you're living and you know I, I doubt it's worth getting litigious about but it is annoying and uh, i generally avoid uh dramatic recreations of historical stories like the plague for exactly those reasons but i want to play one more song and talk a little bit about your post journalism career in the music business and this is uh, claude jones doing sykesville I was standing in the forest, waiting for the rain. When
1: a man comes up to me, said, this boy's insane. He took me to a policeman,
0: and put me in a car. I tried to break away from that. I' did. And that was Claude Jones, He's a Washington, D.C. area performer, and I think that's a later re-recording of the song that was originally released by the Claude Jones band in the early 70s, and it's about a mental institution called Sykesville. This is a band you managed, and they were actually in your apartment when Bowie came over and were passing a bong around and studiously ignored the guy. Tell us about To Their Regret. Tell us about your... Well, uh, well, actually,
1: I've got to correct you there. I, so, I was managing two bands. Uh, Claude Jones was one. They
0: were not in my apartment. The other ah. band,
1: Sky Cobb, was in the apartment. My band.
0: My, my so, Thanks for correcting that.
1: Yeah, Sky Cobb. Um, and to this day, Marcus Cuff, who was the drummer in Sky Cobb, and it remains a friend and lives in L.A., and... After Sky Cobb, he went on to become the drummer in Amy Lou Harris's band, the Angel Band. And then he helped form a band in L.A. called the Textones. And uh, he's now one of the premier motorcycle and tattoo photographers in Los Angeles. To this day, we laugh about it. He says, I ignored David Bowie. I can't believe it. Now, David Bowie was not a household name. In America, in 1971, yeah, far from it. You know, it. far from it. The fact is that, yeah, Space Oddity made noise here in the states in 1969, which is why I interviewed him in '69. But by '71, people didn't know, and especially Sky Cob fashioned themselves uh, like the band, the Robbie Roberts and Rick Danko et cetera, Levon Helm group they were that you know kind of country americana rock and here was this guy freaky in a a long kind of crushed velvet coat that went down to his calves and they just ignored him and passed the ball around and it was you know david and i had a laugh about the ball he'd never seen one before and in fact there's a funny story there's a photo in the group in the book of ron my brother ron david And and i sitting on my parents' living room couch, and David has something in his hand. And I have received so many emails, people saying, David had a joint in his hand. David had a joint. No, it was my father's business card. Uh, (laughs) My father managed a brewery, and David was very interested in that. My father gave him a card. End of that story.
0: And and so how was the segue from journalism into management, and, and how did that go for you?
1: Well, there was no, no, you know, there was no segue from journalism to management because I started managing Claude Jones in 1969. So I was a journalist until 1973. I think one of the reasons Claude Jones, uh, their drummer Reggie Beersbane approached me was because he had read my column in the star. So they probably figured I had contact with record companies, which I did. And, uh, it was it was pretty amazing run with Claude Jones. You, if, if Sky Cobb fashioned themselves after the band, Claude Jones would be more akin to the Grateful Dead. Um, not in that they were a jam band, though they did some jam songs, but they had a huge following in Washington, D.C. They could draw 20,000 people to the Sylvan Theater at the Washington Monument. In fact, Claude Jones was on stage at the May Day rally in D.C. in 1971 when the park was surrounded by troops and police and batons were being swung at people. And we made it back to our cars, got our equipment off the stage before the largest mass arrest, arrest in, in American history happened, and 12,000 people were Man. arrested and taken to RFK
0: stadium That's so, that's crazy. And and you actually got them a deal with Mercury Records that they turned down.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know wow. Um we had such a following. My brother introduced the Claude Jones music to Mercury since my brother worked for the label. And in the New York office, Simon Hayes, a British guy who had worked, uh, who had co founded Mayfair Public Relations, which was the Beatles PR group, and a guy named Bob Sarlin, um, they loved the band. They were constantly coming to D.C. They wanted to sign the band. And they wanted to sign the band so badly that. Irving Green and Irwin Steinberg, the president and vice president of the company, came in from Chicago to this hippie club we were playing called Emergency. And they were in suits and ties and walked into this room full of marijuana smoke. And they were blown away. Um, I had really lobbied to to sign the deal. The deal was $40,000 to do an album with an option for another album, any money that was left out of the 40 grand, the band kept as part of an advance. Now, 1969, 70, 71, 40,000. I don't know what that would be akin to now, 400,000. Maybe it was a lot of money. Yeah. it's a big this, deal. This, it was a big deal. And unfortunately the uh, two members of the band insisted on coming with me to the contract meetings, uh, for with Mercury and they came back and the band had kind of a socialist ethic in that everyone had an equal vote, including the roadies on major moves and signing with Mercury lost by one vote. And to this day, I said to the guys, you know, the worst case scenario would have been the, the album flopped and, and you moved on. Um, Instead, we ended up doing an EP, which was one of the first EPs done, an extended play, uh, five songs, of which Sykesville was one of the songs. And it was a song written about our keyboard players' institutionalization in the state mental hospital, which was in Sykesville, Maryland.
0: Wow. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, again, your book is very valuable because it gives you that on the ground in the time, in the moment perspective, and Claude Jones is a group I'd never heard of before, and I'm fairly well, well versed on this era, not so much on the East Coast, but you know these decisions and things are on the knife's edge and could go either way, and there's no telling what might have happened if they had put an album out in 1970, 71, 72 on Mercury, um, but we'll never know. And uh, no, Michael, well, the, let, let me, uh, let, me let me tell you what how, yeah.
1: what did happen though. Rod Stewart recorded a Claude Jones song called Lesson to Learn, which is on the EP. Nils Lofgren was a session musician for Rod, and Mills was diddling on the guitar and doing Lesson to Learn, and Rod said, I love that song. Rod Stewart recorded it. It was the flip side of Love Touch from the Legal Eagles movie. Um, a British group called Bees Make Honey recorded Lesson to Learn. We had a a big following in Great Britain, and the Claude Jones EP became so popular in Europe. But the fact is that the band broke up New Year's Eve, uh, end of 1971, beginning of 1972 was the end. But they did morph into another great band that I ended up managing.
0: And I wish we had time to hear about that. Michael Oberman, the book is full of great stories we didn't get to. The story of Led Zeppelin and the gig that may or may not have ever happened, but there was a movie made about it. Uh, uh, a limo ride with Keith Richards, a bong business, watching the moon landing with Blind Faith, Eric Clapton and Steve Winwood, The Atlantic City Pop Festival with Doug Sam uh, at the same time as Woodstock and, and at the time it wasn't apparent which festival was going to be big or bigger. So, Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show. The book is Fast Forward, Play, and Rewind.
2: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Next week, Nate will be back with Joseph Lanza to discuss his definitive elevator music, a surreal history of music, easy listening, and other mood song. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. Fast Forward, Play, and Rewind is published by Takapo Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.